If you will, this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 25 in just a moment. When we were in Israel, there was a, um, a gift shop that we went to. And so we were in Bethlehem, and so it was neat to go into this gift shop and see all the things. And you know, being that it is in Bethlehem, you know what they had, right? Nativity scenes galore. Because we all know that you're not a devout believer in Christ if you do not have a nativity scene set up during Christmas. Amen? No? Okay, okay. Just joking. So I'm, you know, we're looking through these gifts, and I'm like, man, these nativity scenes look really nice. And I'm like, just looking, they're made out of olive wood, and they've got all the characters, everything's all put together. And we came across one that was as big as this pulpit, and I thought, well, this will be a nice gift for my wife, right? It was $50,000. Let's just say I left that in Bethlehem. We know that when the Christmas season comes, we will all engage in the wonderful labor of, de- of decorating our houses. And there at the center, sometimes, of our decorations will be a nativity scene. And it will have, you'll have that little wooden stable, small stable. And there will be baby Jesus in the wooden trough. And there you will have all the characters of the Christmas story. You will, and, and then some. You'll have Mary and Joseph and you'll have the shepherds. And then you'll have a possible, you'll have an angel. And then you'll have wise men, which as we're seeing, the wise men didn't really come until a couple years later, and, which is interesting. You'll have some animals, barnyard animals. And if you're just really devout, you may even have a drummer boy. I don't remember him in the story, but you know, you have that. You see all these ki- Characters all there surrounded by baby Jesus. And yet there are two individuals who were left out of this. Now they were not there at the manger scene, but obviously neither were the Magi. Today we're going to look at those two lesser known characters of the birth narrative of Christ. I'm going to introduce you to two characters starting this morning. Two individuals who were not really known but yet serve a very important purpose within the birth narrative. It is Simeon and Anna. These two individuals play a brief but yet critical part into Luke's intro of his gospel. And they provide a a trustworthy testimony concerning Jesus and the salvation that he brings. But they do something else. And and I really didn't know how relevant this sermon was going to be this morning until really about yesterday. But what these individuals are going to show us this morning, and we're not we're going to cover them in one today and one next week, they are going to be an example of the faithful remnant of Israel. You must always understand that God always has a remnant. When everything else goes, when the religious society itself is corrupted and they move away from the Lord, God is always going to have his elect. God's always going to have his church. He's always going to have a remnant of people who are faithful unto him, though they may be small. And what we find is, is that the two individuals that we're going to begin looking at, they were of genuine faith. 
genuine faith in the coming Messiah, and they had not been corrupted by the religious elites of their day. Listen to J.C. Ryle as he writes about this. He says, Religion was at a very low ebb in Israel when Christ was born. The faith of Abraham was spoiled by the doctrines of Pharisees and Sadducees. The fine gold had become disgracefully dim. Yet even then we find in the midst of Jerusalem a man and a woman, just and devout, upon whom is the Holy Ghost. It is a cheering thought that God never leaves himself entirely without a witness. Small as his believing church may sometimes be, the gates of hell shall never completely prevail against it. The true church may be driven into the wilderness. They may be scattered like a little flock, but it will never die. There was a lot in Sodom. There was an Obadiah in Ahab's court. There was a Daniel in Babylon, a Jeremiah in Zedekiah's court. And in the last days of the Jewish congregation, when iniquity iniquity was almost full, there were godly people like Simeon and Anna in Jerusalem and in the temple of God. And to see what example we have before us this morning. As we begin this morning, we are going to look at two individuals who are a model for you and I in a time where it seems that the true church of Christ is getting smaller and smaller, where the counterfeit church is growing by leaps and bounds. We are going to look at a model of what it means to be the faithful remnant of God. And I cannot tell you how relevant this is in a time where we are seeing more and more churches, and it's no longer outside the Southern Baptist Convention, by the way. It's no longer the other churches. It is the evangelical, conservative, Southern Baptist churches who are moving away from the Lord, from the Scriptures, and becoming counterfeit. And you and I are are now finding ourselves with a question that we must answer. How do we live in an evangelical culture that has been corrupted? Dear friends, I have titled the sermon this morning, The Simple Lifestyle of the Faithful Remnant. The Simple Lifestyle of the Faithful Remnant. And I want to present to you this morning our first example, our first model, and his name is Simeon. We'll look at Anna next week, and then we'll actually come back and we'll look at Simeon's song and prophecy. And so I want you to see three things about Simeon this morning. I want you to see his faith, I want you to see his hope, and I want you to see his guide. His faith, his hope, and his guide. So let's, let's begin this morning, and we will begin in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. And we read, it says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ, or the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, when his parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. And then he took him into his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. 
My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. I want you to notice first this morning in our text, and we're not going to get through all these verses, but notice first in our text this morning, the faith of Simeon. Notice in verse 25. I love this. There was a man in Jerusalem. Now, as, as, we, as Luke introduces this guy, this man in Jerusalem, sadly, many modern translations have left out the word behold. But yet in the Greek text, always it is behold a man in Jerusalem. And you say, well, that, that's really not a big deal. It doesn't tra- make any, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mess with the translation. It doesn't mess with anything. But, but it does add some emphasis to it. And so it's, it's behold the man in Jerusalem. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, the reason is that word behold is a word to capture the reader's attention. It is, it is a spotlight that shines on someone. And, and everyone knows, you know, if you're at a play or something or, or, or maybe a concert and everything goes dim and there's a spotlight on one individual, that is the person that you are to focus on. And so here we find that Luke is telling us, I need you to see and behold this guy Simeon. I, I need you to, to, to notice he's different He's rare. He he stands out within the crowd. So in the temple of God, in Jerusalem, there is a man that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, all of you reading this need to take notice of this guy. There's something about Simeon that we need to to realize. Well, what what are we to notice? Dear friends, it is his faith. Notice what we're told. It is said that he is a righteous and devout man. In modern terms, one would say that Simeon is saved and he is devoted to the Lord. Now, I know that that seems very simple. I know that seems very anticlimactic. He's not a John the Baptist, right? He's not a Peter. He's he's not John the Apostle. He's He's not Paul the Apostle. He's just a simple man with simple faith and simple devotion to the Lord. But dear friends... When you are living in the midst of a corrupted religious society, a man of simple faith, a man of of simple devotion unto the Lord is going to stand out. You see, like Abraham, this man's righteousness came not by works. We've already seen this. We've already seen this whole phrase of righteous and devout. We saw it with John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. We saw that, that, that when we read this phrase, it is to say that he is righteous not because he was a good guy, not because he obeyed the law. It is because he has been, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to him. So we see that like Abraham before, who received his righteousness by faith, Simeon receives his as well, not to because he adhered or obeyed the law, but because he believed the word of God, that God would send a Savior who would take away the sins of the world. He placed his eternal hope, his eternal life, his salvation in the promised Messiah. And just to kind of back that up, just take notice of verse 30. For in verse 30 we read, when he takes the child into his arms, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. He understood that this is the the Christ, this is the Messiah, who will be the salvation of Israel. Now, did Simeon know 
everything that we know today? Well, obviously not. But remember, he has placed his faith in the revealed word of God and that which was given to him. And he received true righteousness. Because true righteousness only comes through saving faith in Christ. Simeon had this. He was righteous or he was right with God for his faith had brought forgiveness of his sins. He had been justified. And you must remember that Old Testament Jews were saved the same way that you are saved today. Dear friends, it is through the faith in the revealed word of God. Placing your hope in your eternal security, your eternal life, the forgiveness of your sins in the Christ, the Messiah. But notice this, his faith also produced a sanctified life. Notice it produces genuine fruit. For we're not told that he was just devout, I mean that he was righteous, but we're told that he is also devout. Now that word devout, is a, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It means to walk carefully, to walk with caution. In, in, in classical Greek, it means that you are a very cautious and careful individual. It, it would it, Take, for example, VBS. If I'm walking through a construction site, I'm very careful of where I place my foot because, because I don't want to step on something. I'm very careful what may fall on my hand. I, I'm a little fearful of where I'm... I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm doing just right, that I'm not placing myself in danger. And so this would describe a person who is cautious before God. Simeon is not only righteous, he is devout. He is a God-fearer. He fears God. He does not fear man. He is careful to obey the law of God, not because it brings righteousness, but because it honors God. And so his life is a life of devoted to God and, and walking righteously before him. He is slow to, turn, to transgress the law of God. You see, he has a strong commitment in keeping the law of God and shunning wickedness, which is very uncommon in his day. You may remember that Jesus Christ, in dealing with the Pharisees, that he told them that they were whitewashed tombs. He told them that their cup was clean on the outside, but on the inside it was filthy and dirty. He told them that they had an appearance of righteousness, but on the inside they were dead and dirty and wicked. And the Apostle Paul even kind of fleshes this out for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He tells us that in the later days, he says, he says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. He says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parent, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But he doesn't just stop there. He then says in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. This was not Simeon. This was the religious people of his day. Wicked individuals who had no fear of God, sinful individuals who then used the law of God to hide behind and cover their sins and make themselves look righteous. They had an appearance of godliness. They were religious. They looked as though they were righteous, but they were not 
devoted and committed to God. They did not walk cautiously and carefully before the Lord. But not Simeon, he did. You see, Simeon feared the Lord and so therefore he shunned the things of, uh, that were wicked and the things that, that transgressed the law of God. And so Simeon was, was unlike the people of his day. He is righteous and he is devout. And Luke tells us, he says, Behold the man. Behold the man in Jerusalem who is righteous and who is devout. Can you imagine, beloved, that in a society that is, that is religious, in a society that prided itself on the law of God, it was as if... He had to take a spotlight and say, if you want to see a man who is really righteous and really devout, you need to look at this man. Well, what about all these other people? Oh, this is a guy who fears the Lord. So FBC, behold the man who stands out. Look at the individual who stands out, who is saved by, by faith in Christ and is, and is devoted to God with his life, with his simple little life. And so therefore it must raise the question of you and I. That in a society where we are seeing over and over again that it's becoming more corrupt and drifting away from the Lord and drifting away from the Scriptures. Are you a righteous and devout person? Do you stand out in the culture? And I know what you've been thinking. I know what you've been thinking because I've thought it too. We just need to march down there and take back what is ours, right? We just need to go down there and get it. Go to Anaheim, Brian, and get it. Just take it back. God has called us, dear friends. God has called us to live a simple yet profound life. You want to take back the culture? You start with your spouse. And you start, you start with your faith in God. You start with your doctrine of salvation. You start with where righteousness really comes from. It's not in, it's, listen, you don't go to the White House. And you certainly don't go to the Southern Baptist Convention or any other convention. You don't go to the big national places. You want to know where you go? You go to the local church. And there in the local church... You remind yourself of where true righteousness comes from. It comes by faith in Christ. So beloved, if you want to stand out in a religiously corrupt society, it is not a hypocritical righteousness that you need. It is a salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. You need a righteousness that is not of your own. You need a righteousness that cannot be, that cannot be manipulated and, and made up and be pretend. You need a righteousness that is won through a man who was perfect and who kept the law and who gave himself on the cross of Calvary and who rose three days from the dead. You need that man's righteousness. The man who, by the way, last week we read about who was circumcised and placed himself under the law that you may be made righteous. Dear friends, if we were wanting to stand out and we are wanting to make that which is wrong right again, we must begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was a righteous in all of his dealings. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. Rose from the third day and all who repent of their sins, all who recognize their sin and come to him and turn from their sins will be saved and made righteous.
you are being told today that to truly be righteous, you need diversity. You are being told today that to truly be righteous, you need to love the sinners and tolerate their sin. You are told today to be righteous, you need to get on the right side of politics. Dear friends, that is the way of the Pharisee. It is not true righteousness. But not only must you and I be righteous, we must be devout. You must be a God-fearer. You must be someone who is devout and committed to the Lord, who walks cautiously and carefully before the the Lord. The faithful remnant of today will be those who who walk with a fear of God. Fear that, that God will not tolerate our willful disobedience. God will not tolerate us engaging in sinful activity over and over and over again with no remorse, even if your local church tells you it's okay. You must fear God and you must not fear man. And thus your thoughts, your words, and your actions must must not transgress the law of God, even if it does transgress the law of the church. Because nowadays it is acceptable in your local church to do a whole lot of things that God says is sinful and wrong. And so may I suggest to you this morning that if we really want to stand out in today, dear friends, it is not walking, it is not going to the conventions and it is not going to the White House. Dear friends, it starts right here in the local church with the doctrine of salvation. We need a true, genuine membership process that outlines what it means to be a member of the church and and how one becomes a member of church and how one is saved. We need a doctrinal statement of faith in which we have that we stand on and we believe in and we're we're not going to be moved by this. We we need to practice the the church disciplines that we talk about. We need to practice the regenerate church membership. We we, we need to, to live according to the scriptures and know the scriptures. You say, Brian, that sounds so simple. But brothers and sisters, it is profound. It is profound in a day when everything else seems to be corrupted and has been tainted. The man and the woman of God, the man and woman who stands out is one who is righteous and is devout unto Christ. But that's not all that we get. Notice now Simeon's hope. Notice the hope of Simeon here. I love this. We see in the next verse that he is, all, or in the same verse, that he is also looking there for the consolation of Israel. So I love this. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. The word consolation describes the comfort one feels when he's consoled in times of disappointment. You read about this this morning. That when, that when the servant brings Rebecca back and Isaac marries her, he is now comforted after the, the loss of his mother. He, was, he found comfort in his wife. That's what this is talking about. It, there, there's, there's, some, there's some disappointment, there's some discouragement, but God brings you comfort. And Israel had been looking forward to this. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a what, it was a who, it was the Messiah. The Jews saw the promised Messiah as their future comforter, their consolation. And Simeon had waited for the day the Messiah would come. He wanted, he looked forward to the day that he beheld 
the, the salvation with his, with his physical eyes. And sadly, many had given up in his day. Sadly, in Simeon's day, the religious leaders of their day had stopped looking for the Savior. I've always wondered why they never were at Bethlehem. If you knew that the Savior was going to be born there, why are you not there? Why are you not waiting and watching? They had given up. And those who maybe had not given up, they redefined what the Savior was. They were wrong about the the type of salvation that he'd bring. They thought it was going to be a king who who brought political salvation, but not Simeon. Simeon's hope was in a, in a Savior. And so notice the word, it says that he was looking. That word looking is in present tense. It means that, that he never gave up. It was a continual looking. He, he continually had his hand over his eyes and he was scanning the world, looking forward to seeing the Messiah because he knew that he would come. He rose from his bed every day, ready and prepared that today is the day. He'll show up. He'll be here. Where others had given up, he patiently persisted. And why shouldn't he? Because in verse 26, we're told that he was promised that he would see the Messiah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Simeon who, on the days of going into the temple, when being discouraged at others who did not have the same doctrinal views of him, the others who had given up on the, seeing the Messiah. Can you imagine Simeon? Some believe he was a rather old man. We, we don't know this, but can you imagine Simeon who going to the temple and every day and waiting on the Messiah and, and going to bed that night and it wasn't today, but maybe tomorrow and then it wasn't tomorrow, maybe it'll be the next. I, he had to have gotten discouraged at one time. And I can imagine in my head him reading Psalms 130. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. By the way, do you know what Simeon means? God has heard. God has heard. Verse 2, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. Let the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. And in his word I do hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord is there. Is, for, the, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. I can imagine Simeon every day waiting to see the Messiah and being discouraged at night and going to the Word of God and reminding himself over and over and over again, maybe not today, but you've promised, so maybe tomorrow. Do you feel that way? Do you get discouraged, brothers and sisters, when the world just doesn't seem to be fixing itself? And we're promised by all these men and women that if we vote for them and we do this, we're promised by all these people, we're promised that if we do this program and that program, we're promised if we'll just, if we'll just move over from the scriptures a little bit, if we just do this and do that, your churches will be full and everything will be right. Or maybe you do everything right. You don't move away from the scriptures. 
And instead of people applauding you and following after you, you're persecuted and laughed at. And you go home and you're wondering, God, am I even doing this right? Dear friends, we are called to wait and to watch. I know that it's simple. I know it's anticlimactic. But the true faithful remnant of Christ are men and women who when the world has went completely dark, our eyes are looking up to the, for the day the sun will rise. Our hope is not in this world. It's not in the people of this world. It's not if, I do th- if, I, if we do this thing and that thing, then, then it's going to fix everything. No, our dear friends, it is in Christ and in Christ alone is my hope. And I wait and I watch knowing that when he comes, that when he comes, he will fix all things. Well, what about justice? He will bring true justice. Well, what about healing? He will bring true healing. Well, well what about fixing this? And, the, and what about the world? The world is, you know, is falling apart. You know, the, the environment. He will fix the environment. He will fix it all, my dear friends. My hope is in Christ. The faithful remnant of our day place their hope not in the world and not in governments and not in politicians and not in psychology and philosophy and not in the medical industry, not in a culture of unity at the sacrifice of truth. We place none of our hope in that. We place it in Christ. And while we wait, we labor and we work to be the salt and the light of the world. Simeon worked. Simeon labored. But he whistled while he worked. He sang hymns while he worked. He looked up as he worked. Only Christ can truly be our comfort. Dear friend, knowing this is a great comfort to us now, but if it is a great comfort to me now, then what about the day when he does come? On that day you will see true justice. On that day you will see true unity. On that day you will see true hope and joy and healing. Dear believer, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? And we as a local church must be reminded of this. Because I know how you feel. I am, not, I am not somehow exempt from the same feelings that you have and the same temptations that you have. To want to, to hear the world and tell me that if you, we'll just place our hope in this, fill in the blank. If we just do this, then we'll all get along and everything will be fine. And We have done that for decades. And look where it got us. Our hope is in Christ. And you say, well, Brother Brian, I, how, do I, how do I find encouragement? How do I find this hope when he didn't come yesterday? And he may not, he's probably not come today. Where do I find the hope like Simeon? You're sitting in it. 
You sit in it hopefully every week. Every Sunday. And you sing, be thou my vision, O Lord. You sing victory in Jesus. You sing his mercy is more. You take of the Lord's Supper to be reminded of what he did so that you'll know what he's promised to do will come about. You come, and I know you, you hear the scriptures reading, and you say, well, what comfort is that? Did you not hear what Randy read this morning? It was the psalm of the cross. It was the psalm of the cross. Dogs surround me. Gentiles. And we were reminded that he made a promise that he would come the first time. And they waited, and they waited, and we're reminded that Psalm 22 came about. You come and you hear the preaching of the word that is not only encouraging, I hope, but also is supernatural and that it, it revives you and you walk out of here, dear friend, and you remember the hope that you have in Christ. It's simple, but it's profound. The faithful remnant of God will be faithful to the gathering of God so that they may be faithful to have hope in God. It's simple. But dear friends, it is powerful. And then thirdly, notice this final thing. Notice verse 25 and 27. He says, he says, And the Holy Spirit was upon him and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed, and he blessed God. Now notice that in three verses there, verse, verse 25, 26, and 27, that we see three consecutive times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Okay, so hopefully for those of us who are observing the text, we're seeing that Luke is going, I need you to see this. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Luke is a man, I mean, not Luke, I'm sorry. Luke is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Simeon is being led and guided by the Holy Spirit. Dr. Luke presents the, the Holy Spirit almost more than any other gospel, and especially when you add in Acts. We, we've seen it, I think there's seven direct references in the first two chapters. He wants us to see a very important truth, that the Holy Spirit is working. Now, we have this idea that the Holy Spirit was just not even there in the Old Covenant before Pentecost, but he was there. John MacArthur exp expounds on this a little bit. If I have I'll try to take, my, take very quick time to say this. He, he says, the Holy Spirit convicted people in the Old Testament of their sin prompted repentance, gave life, elicited faith, and drew them to God. There is, however, a new dimension of, to the Spirit's work in the lives of believers after Pentecost. As Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 7, concerning the increased degree of the Spirit's ministry to them, He abides with you and will be in you. But under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was present in power and with the believer. But under the New Covenant, His, present is, his presence is in the believer. So notice what he says about Simeon. The Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was with him. Well, what is the Spirit doing? It is guiding him. It has guided him into the temple. It has guided him to and revealed to him the truth that this child is the Messiah. It guided him to give praise. And then also we'll see in a couple weeks to prophesy. Notice, how, notice what he says in verse 26. That it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Greek there means reveal is a divine message. 
And so it can even be a warning. The Magi, it was revealed to them that they not return to King Herod. And so here the Holy Spirit is instructing him. He's giving him, he's teaching him. He's leading him. And so Simeon would finally see with his spiritual eyes, his physical eyes, what his spiritual eyes have seen all along. The salvation that comes in the Messiah. And then notice verse 27. He came into the spirit of the temple. The spirit led him there. Dear friends, like Simeon, the faithful remnant are guided, instructed by the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, how does that work? What does that look like? Well, let me just very quickly share with you in John chapter, John chapter 16. L- listen to what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. I'm con- and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will make, uh, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and I will disclose it to you. Difference we see exactly right here in what Jesus said. The Spirit doing for you and I what it was doing for Simeon. Guiding and instructing him. Beloved, the Holy Spirit instructed. We believe this. This is our doctrinal statement. The Holy Spirit instructed, inspired the writings of the Scriptures. The Bible is the result and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, if we are to remain the faithful remnant of God... You must be guided by the Spirit of God in the writing of God. You must look to the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit has has inspired. Let us receive, J.C. Ross said, let us receive nothing. Let us believe nothing. Let us follow nothing which is not in the Bible, nor can be proved by the Bible. And this is exactly what we're seeing. People who say, the Spirit of God is leading me. And we go, where are he leading you to? That ain't in Scripture. Well, but the Spirit of God told me. Dear friends, the Spirit of God, Jesus says, will never contradict the truth in the Scriptures of God. You want to follow the Holy Spirit? You want to be led by the Holy Spirit? Then you let the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God lead you. You let him lead you. you. You go to him and you read the scriptures and you pray for the spirit to enlighten your mind on what it's telling you. You pray to the spirit to teach and to reveal to you. Just like it revealed to Simeon who Christ is. To reveal to you the truth of salvation. To reveal to you that salvation comes to those who repent of their sins and believe upon Christ. Gentile or Jew. You pray for the spirit to give wisdom. As you apply these truths, you look to the scriptures the Holy Spirit have inspired. And dear friends, may I also say, if you notice what Jesus said in John chapter 16 there. We also see that we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins. We must allow the Spirit of God to convict us of our sin. But sadly, the church of today... It's telling us 
Don't listen to the Holy Spirit. You're not a sinner. You're a victim. You're a victim. You commit mur- if, if you commit abortion, you're not a murderer. You're a victim. If you are practicing the sin of homosexuality, listen, you're, ju- you're just, the, the world is, just doesn't understand you. You, you, you know, or if you have desires for homosexuality, as long as you don't practice it, you're fine, but those desires you can have, you're okay. You say, no pastor would ever say that. Dear friends, the new pastor of Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's replacement, is on video saying that. One of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. He and his wife, who is a pastor, is saying these things on the homosexuality part. They are telling you and telling me, don't listen to the Spirit of God convicting you of your sins. Do you want to know who the Scriptures tell us fight against the Holy Spirit? He's got a name. It's called Satan. The people of God, the faithful remnant of God, are the people who follow and are guided and are influenced by the Spirit of God. You are to pray that you will be submissive to the Scriptures. Dear friends, you are not to fight and run from what the Spirit is convicting you about and and how the Spirit is sanctifying you in righteousness. We embrace the joy and the forgiveness that comes when the Spirit of God convicts us of our sins and when He leads us to to repentance. And we learn the truth inspired by the Holy Spirit, found in the Word of God. And you say, well, how how can I learn what the Spirit really is teaching? Dear friend, get in a Sunday school class. Come to preaching. Find, a, find someone to mentor you. Start reading and studying the scriptures. And you will begin to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life as it begins to sanctify you and grow you. I know it sounds simple. But it is profound in our day. Allow the Spirit to lead and to guide you. In closing, the words of Charles Spurgeon, I love it. In the very beginning of his sermon on Simeon, he just goes, what a man. He begins his sermon, he says, what a biography of a man. How short, how complete, how simple. Yet the God of heaven calls us today. Behold the man of God in Jerusalem named Simeon. Dear church, as our religious culture continues to decay and all under the appearance of Christianity, all under the the, the ruse of love and unity, and as local churches or as churches just begin to drift away from the scriptures, dear friends, we, you, First Baptist Church of Jonesboro must continue to live The simple yet profound life of biblical faith, biblical hope, and and have a biblical guide. This is righteous. This is devout. And by the way, it is the people 
who do this, who will finally see Jesus with their own eyes. They will be the ones to see Christ as Simeon saw him, not the others. Let's pray.